Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of LinkedIn Live. I have to say, this is a bucket list show. I get the wonderful honor and pleasure of welcoming Renee Maborn to the show. If you don't know who she is and you're in business or leadership, I don't know where you've been because she is the co-author of Blue Ocean Strategy, which has sold, I, I think, more than 4 million copies. I, it, whatever it is, it's massive. I think, I think everyone's got a copy on their desk. But she is also a fellow and a professor of strategy at Inseed. She is also a director of the Blue Ocean Strategy Institute. And she's got a new book out with her co-author, Chan Kim, called Beyond Disruption, which I got an early copy of. It is fantastic. So welcome to the show, Renee. Oh, thank you so much, Tiffany, for having me. And thank you for that kind and generous introduction. Really, you know, there are a few books that kind of show up over time that I feel in my life anyway, have stood the test of time. And I would say Blue Ocean is one of them, without a doubt. I, I think I was still at Gartner when it came out. And it was, I couldn't sit in a meeting where people were like, we're going after a blue ocean. Like we got to stay out of the red ocean. Like it had actually entered the nomenclature, which I think that was a success. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, listen, so much is going on right now since you've written Blue Ocean, but I, I want to kind of start there and say mm -hmm. that was about innovation. Mm -hmm. And and it was really a build upon, if I, if I might, uh, in many ways, uh, if you go back to the innovators dilemma, right, that was kind of starting at the ground, kind of biting at these bigger providers. And then you kind of blew it up and said, no, innovation should happen everywhere. Would you mind grounding us in that? So, you know, let me back up a bit on that, Tiffany. So, you know, we started out, we started out actually in the field of strategy, not in the field of innovation. And what we saw is that in every strategy class, the predominant theory and theme taught was about all about how to compete. So you analyze an existing industry, you focus on outpacing and benchmarking your competition to find the best way to position in that industry to win. And, you know, competing is still a viable theory. And, you know, we asked ourselves, why should strategy really only be about competing? Why can't strategy also be about creating? Because when you compete, one company wins, one company loses, and that's a zero sum game. And industry history is very clear. Industries begin first by someone creating the industry. People jump in and imitate and competition begins. But the field of strategy was only focused on how do you compete once the industry exists? And it was missing the entire other half of how do you create those industries to begin with? So that's why it's called Blue Ocean Strategy is because we said, well, wait a minute, let's explore that other half of how theory of strategy can be about creating as opposed to only competing so they can complement one another. We dove in and we named existing industries and competing red oceans, to your point, because they were intensely competitive, bloody, lots of sharks, tough, <laughs> and it kind of a race to the bottom in many industries, right? Everyone's so much right. benchmarking. And then we should call these new markets companies were creating these blue oceans of new market space where you didn't really have competition there. So we really began our research stream in the field of strategy. And that's how that started. And that was the red, the blue. And so it was a theory of competing complemented by a theory of creating. And voila, that would be blue ocean strategy. And, and what would be the role of execution in that? So it's, it's very important. So, you know, the second part of the book on blue ocean strategy in particular 
really talks about how do you start to give some of the key principles? How do you overcome the organizational hurdles of, hey, I don't have enough resources, or hey, my people are wedded to the status quo, or I can't get them motivated to do it, or there's a lot of politics, shoot you down before you stand up and do something different and build willingness to, to execute. But the truth is it's our second book, Blue Ocean Shift, that really addressed execution because after Blue Ocean came out, and as you said, really entered the business lexicon, we had people all over the world coming to us and they say, listen, Chan and Renee, here's our situation. We're stuck in this red ocean to begin with. And our challenge is not to just like a startup create this blue ocean. I need to shift this monster out of the red to the blue. How do we do it? So we had all these companies around the world applying the ideas already, even governments. So we started to speak with them, work with them, our friends that we knew were working with them, others we read about doing it. We jumped in and we said, what works, what doesn't? And our second book really laid out, you know, just the roadmap of how do you go from A to Z, but also importantly, Tiffany, to your point, the human architecture. You know, most strategy books never even mention the human being. And <laughs> They mention it as though you're a chief marketing officer or you're a salesperson, but actually we don't show up as a chief marketing officer or salesperson. We show up as a person, a human being, and we are, you know, vulnerable. We're afraid to make a mistake and we're afraid to step from what we know to explore new possibilities, which is blue ocean. So we introduced that concept really of humanness and teaching people, how do you step beyond your comfort to your discomfort to move? And that's really the second book. So it's kind of, so execution is really critical. You know, you, you're with Salesforce and you have the owner who's the creator who sets a really strong tone, the owner creator, but it's very different when you have professional management team, often in a lot of established companies. And so those types of understanding, it's important in all organizations because we're all human beings collectively brought together. But it really is. And so Blue Ocean Shift actually is real. All companies that were applying the ideas in action, you know, how did they make those shift? What works? What doesn't? And how do you overcome the hiccups along the way? So when Blue Ocean came out, I think one of the things I I often said when people because shift hadn't come out yet. So yes. it was just Blue Ocean. And I'd say what always concerned me about it was trying to apply the Blue Ocean kind of mindset, if you will, stay yes. with me for a second, right? Where the culture was a red ocean culture, like yep. just that you may have the greatest intentions to innovate yep. and to go create those markets, but you don't have the, the muscle understanding of how to even do it. So this great intention, and I saw them really struggle on the execution. So when shift mm -hmm. came out, I was like, oh, perfect. Right. Because yep. it kind of was the bookend of that story. It is Tiffany. And you know, the other thing too, is that, you know, people will ask us often like, Tell us why blue ocean strategy doesn't work. You must have seen why. But the real, the chief reason it doesn't work is because companies don't do the work. They get here about a blue ocean. They want to do a blue ocean, but do they actually sit down with their team and actually start to work through the process? And, you know, you're right about that red ocean mindset. So, you know, in blue ocean shift, we really lay out the step-by-step -step process there. Draw your existing strategy canvas. You let them draw it. Are we in a blue or a red? No, we're in a red. They discover. Now they're afraid. They don't know how to shift in their red oceans. Okay, can we take a step and look at the buyer utility map and find all the pain points of the industry? Are you willing to do that? If there's no pain points, we stop. But if they are, could that foretell possibility to do something? And then step, what you're doing is you're not imposing and saying, yeah, we're confident we're going to do it. Real confidence comes when you gain creative competence. 
And so Blue Ocean Shift is about how do you build that creative competence and to give people very simple tools that whether you have a PhD or a high school degree, you're a high school dropout. You can use those simple tools to think and see what you didn't see before and start to find those opportunities. And you need that. You need these stepping stones and these tools to help you reframe your mind and see what you didn't see. It's like, you know, if you can't see well and you put on glasses, you're like, oh, is that what a blade of glass looks like? Oh my gosh. And it's tried to put on a blue glass for you so you can see what before looked red starts to look blue. So, yeah. Well, I think Ginny Rometty, the former uh, CEO oh, yeah. of IBM, said growth and comfort never coexist, right? I mean, like this is about being as uncomfortable as you possibly are going to be. But you also said something in there that I think sometimes gets overlooked is you're asking those questions like, are we in red or blue, right? And you put the canvas and then what's happening in our customer base? And you have to ask those questions. Is it do we keep going? Do we stop? Do we fix? Is that you're asking questions that many executives, many companies don't even know the answers to. And they're building these strategies with kind of a glass half full, right? Like they're just, they're making decisions with either preconceived notion of what they think is happening in their employee base and their customer base and their product group, whatever it is, or they're blinded to the fact that they may actually be in hyper growth. So, right. The worst teacher is <laughs> success. So they're shocked by what they find or they don't believe it. Well, that's why you have to do the process with them. It's not imposed from the outside and you have them you draw it and you tell me, because you know adults like to self-discover, not be told. If you tell me, I have to doubt it. If I tell you, I'm certain about it. <laughs> and so, you know, it builds it builds really on that. And you know, companies can finish 150 page strategic planning process, and then you say, just draw your strategy canvas, one simple page, and they struggle to your very true point. And what you find is many companies really don't know their market. And they really don't know their customer base. And if they talk to their customers, they talk with them to sell to them, not to listen. And often, many times, they're apprehensive to want to listen. And what they feel is that if you start telling me what's wrong, you're going to realize what's wrong as though they don't already know it. <laughs> and then you're going to reevaluate me as opposed to it could be something good. So, you know, that's the long and the short. We were very passionate about that research and, you know, even our new book. It really builds on this really a 30-year arc that we had been working on about how do we start to see these new spaces, new marketplaces and industries, you know, to grow and bring people in that process with you. Well, I'm just going to park Blue Ocean after this last comment, right? It was yeah. very much around disruption, right? And now beyond disruption is sort of this non-disruptive creation, right? Where you've got disruptive creation, which is, I'm going to say, I'm oversimplifying the blue, right? But I felt like beyond disruption was this non-disruptive creation. Can you describe what that is and what that means? Yeah. So, so you know, you're asking really, really great questions. So Blue Ocean strategy is growing, as you mentioned. But at the same time, in the field of innovation, disruption is the key buzzword. And everyone is talking disrupt or die. Everyone is talking disruption. And to your initial question, people would started to come to us and they said, you know, Blue Ocean is about creating and creation of new markets. So isn't that effect innovating? And if it's innovating, how is that different from what we talk about in the field of innovation, which is disruption? Because those are two different silos in academia, really, strategy and innovation. So, you know, while we had been doing our research and this question kept coming back to us, we said, okay, after Blue Ocean Shift, we said, let's really dive in. And we had been building our research over time and let's examine that. 
But actually what we found, Tiffany, and looking at our data is that actually blue oceans are not disruption. Disruption in the general sense of the word, which means like the pandemic was disruptive to our lives, Ukraine war is disruptive. In the field of innovation, disruption means the creation of a new market that displaces an existing industry. So iPhone comes in and displaces mobile phones at the time. They dominate and then a new market starts to form. When we looked at Blue Ocean, though, we found there were very few cases of pure disruption in our research. So yes, there was a Nova Nordisk insulin pen and it comes out and it displaces the existing products on the market in that area. Or Apple iPhone comes out or iTunes comes out and displaces what exists in the market. But most of Blue Ocean, that's when you create a new market within an existing industry. So you have a high level of disruptive growth where demand transfers from the old to the new. But when we looked at the bulk of our Blue Ocean data, what we found is it didn't lead to displacement. So if you look at Cirque du Soleil, it created a new market space, it took some share from theater, it took some share from circus. It didn't displace either industry. It had a margin of disruptive growth, but it grew all these new customers as well. Southwest Airlines didn't kill the airline industry. It didn't kill the bus industry. It took some from ground transport, some from air, new concept, you know, let's say ground transportation in the air and pulled in all new customers as well. So they weren't displacing. They were creating new markets across existing industries, not within them. But at, while we were looking at that and everyone was talking disruption, we saw something interesting that we'd been observing at the margin. We said, wow, that's interesting. There are these cases of these companies that are creating all new markets. They're not within an existing industry that displaces. They're not across that has partial displacement, part not. They're creating these new markets, non-disruptive creation or creation with no disruption, no displacement. No one is made worse off. What is that? I said, now that is interesting because if I can grow and open up billion dollar new markets, without destroying anyone else or knocking one everyone else over, I'm actually as an organization able to achieve social good in the very way, economic way I make money. And we said, but no one's talking about that. Let's explore that. So that is really what Beyond Disruption is about. We've talked a lot about disruption, we've talked Blue Ocean, but there is this other element, which is the opposite side of the innovation spectrum. And it's saying that innovation doesn't have to be disruptive at all. And we can create new markets where there once, once in any outside of existing industry boundaries and open up these new industries. And that's what that book is about. And we're like, we should be talking about this, but nobody's talking about it yet. Well, it's kind of like half the story was being missed, right? You were talking about one side of the coin. Well, that's right. So if you look in the innovation space, you could say if you want to bookend the market creating innovation spectrum, there's disruption on the one hand. And to your point, on the other end, you want to bookend it with non-disruptive creation when you create this new market without any displacement at all. So disruption is really a zero-sum game, and non-disruptive creation is really a positive-sum approach where no one is made worse off in the process of that new market creation. And is it solving entirely new sets of challenges? Like it's not going after an existing challenge? Great question, Tiffany. So. <laughs> No, really. So when you're disrupting, you're really creating a breakthrough solution to the existing industry problem. Yeah. Or you're offering a magnitude of value superior to what the existing industry is doing to get people to be encouraged to leave what they're doing and switch to your new offering, right? That's like displacement occurs. When you're offering non-disruptive creation, you are either identifying and solving a brand new problem outside of industry boundaries, 
or creating and seizing a brand new opportunity that didn't exist before. But importantly, a brand new problem could be one that is actually long existed, but everyone has taken for granted as simply the way, fact of the way life is that you can do nothing about. And so we don't even see it or think about it anymore as a problem. He's taken for granted problems. And so that is what it's about. So yes, it is solving whole new sets of problems and creating all new sets of opportunities beyond what an industry does. Yes. So moonshots, I'm just, I'm quoting that, I'm air quoting that, but you know, where like it is a, it could be societal, environmental. I mean, it's across the board, not just. Well, it can be, it can be, but you know, you know, we start our book Beyond Disruption with a quote, you know, saying grounded optimists have the advantage. And we call them grounded optimists because we wouldn't really consider a moonshot. So let me back up and give you, you know, like you look at the square reader, right? Jack Dorsey and Jim McKelvey. The whole credit card industry and the payment system industry cater to medium and large corporations. And all of them, you know, the payment systems were expensive, cumbersome, whatever. And of course, it was taken for granted a babysitter couldn't accept a credit card. Farmer's market doesn't have a credit card. Because, hey, come on, you're just starting out. That, that, that It's like those are the tough things that come with it. And when you're bigger, you'll get it. You know, we just assume there's certain right. things that are rough in our life. Like that's a, that's a starting point in life, kid. Suck it up. That's it. Yep. And, you know, they said, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't everyone benefit from that? And why couldn't that existing but long established problem be taken for granted? Now, would I say that's a moonshoot going really far out? Actually, I wouldn't say that. Yep. Yep. I would agree. I think, you know, I think about microfinance even, you know, when it was found and now I take it to, because non-disruptive creation exists in developing markets, but equally, you know, like in square in developed markets, very importantly, and our book is filled with it and billion dollar businesses, but like, look at microfinance, you know, Grameen Bank, they look at it, Muhammad Yunus. Right. right. Most of the country is very on the extreme poverty, $2 a day, took for granted generational poverty. And he said, of course they can't have banks because no guarantee, no, no steady income, make a few bucks, no collateral, nobody to sign for you and, and be a co-signer with any means. Of course, banking can't address them. So used Grubbean Bank in Growth IQ as one of my case studies around doing well by doing good, right? Yeah. 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 And, and so, you know, then they started to challenge, you know, and in our book, we give the building blocks how to do that, but they don't start, of course, we say dream big, start small by looking how could they solve that for first a town, a village area, see that it works and rolls out. So my point is when you really look at the ideas we're talking about, yes, Elon Musk talking about, which is non-disruptive, space tourism and a life on Mars and interplanetary, I would call that non-disruptive and maybe a moonshot. But you look at our book and you look at the paths that we showed to unlock these, they're very grounded. They are not out there the way you think. Realistic. Very realistic, yes. But we just haven't been tuned to think about them. And when you're not tuned, it's like when you hear a new word, you've never heard it before. It's also a weird word. Then you hear the new word and you start looking at a party you hear. You hear it on TV. You hear it there because now you're attuned to it. And this is what this book starts to do. It tries to make a tune to see these non-disruptive opportunities that are often right smack in front of us. But we're so, you know, when you say the word disruptive, it does something to immediately. You take aim at the existing industry with the objective to displace, right? Now I'm just telling you, look over here instead, Chan and I, right? And let's see what we see there. And so- Well, the other thing in disruption, I think people also hear 
lot of money, big company, long time, not that start small, be able to take at bats, right. To get that home run. Like let's start first base, second base there, you know, not everything has to be, you know, that home run. Yeah. And, you know, you make a good point on that too. So uh, on two points on that one is that one, our book is not an articulation. I want to clarify, just like blue ocean wasn't saying competing is not important. It was saying, we know a lot about competing, but let's understand this other half that we've ignored. We are not saying disruption is important. It's very important. There's a lot of industries asleep at the wheel, ineffective use of society's resources, negative externalities. People are going to disrupt that industry. Those are the ones ripe for disruption. What we're only saying is we know a lot about that now after 20 years. Here's this other area. Let's look at that other area and understand how we can explore that. And to your point about a lot of resources, you know, if I'm going to disrupt an industry, we should never imagine that the existing industry is going to just say, oh, welcome to my industry. Please take the bologna off my bread. They're going to fight you. But like Square never had the credit card nor the payment system industry go after it because it wasn't going after the bologna on their bread. It was creating a whole new sandwich outside that industry. And that is one of the things too, if I'm a startup or even I'm an established company, if I'm an established company and I'm a big player and I say, disrupt that market, they know they're going up against big players. They know what kind of resources, how they're gonna respond. So it's like not as easy a bet as it is. But the second, if you tell me disrupt my own business, you know, people will point to Kodak and they'll say, oh, Kodak, you know, digital photography, they even create it when they respond. Let me tell you, when all of your colleagues, all of your resources, you have, you know, a tens of thousands of employees all behind that, that's much easier to say to disrupt yourself than it is to do. And, you know, we give some examples in the book of companies that were hit by full on disruption that actually applied non-disruptive creation to respond to disruption because some industries it's inevitable like we do the ocean liner industry when jet travel came it's inevitable people fly versus take an ocean liner most ocean liners collapse but kunar switched to cruises and said we don't use our ocean liners to go from point a to b we're going to use them to turn it to a vacation experience in itself opened up this whole non-disruptive opportunity billion dollar business huge impact on growth and employment and they're the ones that survived out of it. So we, you know, we try to show both sides, but there really are these organizational advantages as well that have been long overlooked to thinking along this lines. I don't know the answer to this question. So it's always risky because sometimes I, I may have an idea of what you might say, because, you know, obviously I've read, read all the books, but do you feel like this is a example of jobs to be done? And let me, let me explain what I mean. So like square is an example, right? The job to be done was I don't have money, cash in my pocket. I'm going to use a quote unquote credit card, right? Mm -hmm. The solution changed. Now it's a little device, right? Or one of my classmates randomly, right? I'm going to have a yard sale or uh, I'm going to create eBay. So I graduated with uh, with Pierre from high school. You know, a little older than me, but Steve Case, AOL, also we went to the same high school. Like firsthand seeing that they'll say, hold on, we used to communicate this way, maybe AOL, right? We used to go to yard sales, maybe eBay, right? It, do you think there's any connection on jobs to be done with this or am, am, I, am I off? No, I don't want to say that. So here's the thing with jobs to be done uh, um, as a concept. I can apply jobs to be done to an existing industry and I can improve that industry. If I apply jobs to be done and I'm thinking about, you know, what Chan and Renee said, these are these non-disruptive opportunities. These are solving brand new problems and, and creating brand new opportunities outside of existing industries. 
it can help me there. So it's not indicative of one or the other. I can apply it just the way some of our non-disruptives are technology-based. Some are without technology. Technology isn't the distinctive defining characteristic of non-disruptive, nor is jobs to be done. So I can use that to aid if I wanted to in creating non-disruptive opportunities, but I can use jobs to be done. So it's not indicative of one necessarily or the other. It just helps me do the job to be done better. And it could very well even be in the red ocean that I do the existing job to be done better in the red ocean and I get incrementally better. So it's just like with technology, it's what I aim it at that determines its power, but in itself, it doesn't indicate one or the other necessarily, no. Fair. Are there any any disruptions that you've, when you were doing the work, you know, obviously it's been 30 years, but in, in this particular for Beyond Disruption, was there anything that you went, wow, not what I expected? And, and Tiffany, help me there with your question. Are you meaning that we are surprised by the disruptive answer that came out? Do you mean? Um, it could be that. It could be that someone actually did and was able to do what they were able to do. You know, just was it in a, an idea and the execution? Was it in, you know, the ability to really go from, you know, red to blue in a new way, you know, where you really were surprised, you know, where you sat back and went, not what I expected or not what I thought I was going to hear. So let me say this. In the area of disruption, you know, which is within an existing industry, I don't know if we were terribly surprised by anything. I can't say that. I can't say that. I think because you know what happens, you know, we see things that materialize and then suddenly this part of our life and we just take for granted. Of course, it's there. Right. <laughs> so right. easy. So easy, Expos, right? right? Of course. Right. Of course. Naturally, my daughter is going to be calling me from Mars in five years. Right. <laughs> or something like that. Like, why didn't I think of that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, so I, I can't, I cannot speak to that. Now, you know, which I said is Blue Ocean, which is across industries, not disrupting. I think our, our book, Blue Ocean Shift, it gives a few examples where Companies applied the ideas and they came out with things, which our book goes into, and I really don't want to go into now, that we were really inspired by really dead-end industries that look like, you know, they kind of just felt helpless. And the market is going down, price points are going down, low-end imports from other countries of the world were entering it. It just felt like, ugh. And yet they went through that process And they came out with some really surprisingly blue ocean ideas, but interestingly also that lifted the price points, which was so fascinating. But I'm going to, I'm going to leave that to your audience to to get the book and read. Um, (laughs) Of course. And and yeah. And so that one, but I would say yes. And you know, the one thing I think is that when people, and I, and I say this real sincerity, I think people systematically underestimate what they're capable of. And I think often when they use their imagination, to think about things, they use their imagine the wrong way to imagine why things can't work and why they can't do it and why their organization is not capable, as opposed to using it the right way, which is how can we, why can't we, how will we do that? And I think that what we found with organizations, and we're going to be starting to find this when we've been talking with people with non-disruptive, when they have some simple tools that they can use to help them look differently, to gear them it teaches them how to think differently and see differently. It's beautiful revelation, actually, what people are capable of at all levels of educational background, actually. Mm-hmm. I would say that it must be so rewarding for you to just, I see such joy 
in the discussion of how much your work, you know, has inspired others, which is just this, it feeds the joy in what you get to do every day. And, you know, I think all of us hope in life that if we're going to spend, you know, a third of our lives doing what we do for quote unquote work, that we find joy in it. So Renee, thank you so much for your, for your time and your willingness to come on and explain these fantastic topics. Uh, but I'm just going to ask you to close us out here. And, and what would you say to people who are going to pick up this book, which once again, uh, Beyond Disruption out now, go get it from wherever you buy your books or Kindle or Audible, that you hope that they get from it? So first, I want to give a shout out to my colleague, Chan Kim, by the way. So thank you for having me. But it's really our collective work for a long time as you know. But let me say, I think what, what we would really hope is you have a conversation on it. Start with a conversation. Does this idea make sense? And what can we start to take away? And let's talk about some of the cases in the book and why were they able to see things? And if we did this, even if we just you know have some fun and say, let's break into three teams and let's get together in three weeks and why, or two weeks, and why don't you guys start thinking about this path to non-disruptive and we'll think this path and let's just have some brainstorming and maybe the team that comes up with some of the best ideas will get together and give them a, you know, a, a dinner or something fun, a, a symbolic type of thing, but really just start to have a conversation on these ideas and start thinking because our real you know, objective is how can we expand the horizon of our thinking? So opportunities that we didn't see in the past, we can begin to see now. And, you know, I end with one thought, you know, we have this new technological revolution it's hitting us right now. And the real question is, everyone is talking these large numbers of potential employees that might get released from this and knowledge work. And the question is, all industrial revolutions have always created new jobs. But the real question is, what is the speed at which employees will get released versus the speed at which jobs will get created? And if the speed of the release of employees is much faster than the speed of creation, we can have a real challenge. Right in society, you know, that we need to uh, accept. And so the question is, then, if non-disruptive allows us to create new jobs without further displacing others, actually, it's an important objective, not only for a business, but even for, you know, economic development boards for that. And the other thing I would say is, if we take that AI and we direct it at productivity and efficiency only, it will lead to more and more displacement. But what if we start brainstorming and we take that technology and we say, because it again, it has non-directional, just like jobs to be done, non-directional. And I gear it towards non-disruptive opportunities. Could we create that there? So those are the types of conversations that we would hope that people just start to have. Well, again, like if I, I often say, and I, I use the, look, we all have to stay curious. We have to invest in ourselves you know, whether it's a podcast, a TED talk, a book, you know, that we are making sure that we're making those investments because regardless of chat GPT, GPT, AI, right? We have to reskill and keep ourselves sharp because the world is changing. And so here is another opportunity um, after listening to this. This was a 40-minute masterclass <laughs> that you need to recommend to everybody, you know, so that they can get a handle on these things. But again, Renee, I am so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the What's Next LinkedIn Live. And congratulations on all your uh, enchanted success. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you.